welcome to one extra special episode of Normandy FM Dragon Age 2 edition because Kenneth Shepard is our last episode of Dragon Age 2. Pulling out. I, Eric Van Allen, am incredibly sad about this, actually. Uh, this game grew on me in a way that I did not think it would. I mean, I, I so so let's... How do, how do we want to start this, Ken? I mean, do we just jump right into it? Is this just, we go right at it? Do we just go right for the... We don't have any guests. It's just you and me. And we've got a finale to talk about. Do we just jump right into this? I guess so. I mean, you want to know what I'm sad about, Eric? What are you sad about? That we got to leave Dragon Age 2 on these terms. Because this is fucking garbage. I... Boy... I have a lot of thoughts about this ending, and I'm still wrestling over how I feel about it after the end of the game. Let's put it that way. Mm. Uh, I will say that going like straight from this, I mean, the span of span of time I went from going from the ending of Dragon Age two to the beginning of Dragon Age Inquisition, it really reminded me again just like how contained this game is i mean mm-hmm. we talked about this I mean, we talked about this all the time how like this is a story about kirkwall this is a story about this city but i really for all its faults i see what they were going for here in the end i think it just hits major stumbling blocks with some of the larger problems of dragon age in just never being able to properly contextualize the mage templar Mm -hmm. like conflict in a way that you would want to have two sides to it right and also uh just some really really rough handling of certain characters (laughs) um which man we're gonna have some talks about because i mean we already teased last week about certain decisions that has been made uh and oh buddy (laughs) so Mm -hmm. um we are on the last straw. This is the final main plot quest of Dragon Age 2. Basically, as I have learned before, once you read the letter uh, that starts this quest, the second you go to the gallows, the endgame just starts, which is a fun thing to find out if you are trying to cross off side quests and, you know, read your letters like <laughs> the game has been telling you to do uh, the entire game. Uh once once we get to the gallows we once again meredith and orsino are at a breaking point you know the 15,000th breaking point that they've ever had only if 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 we are not a mage our sibling is here so like i i had bethany present with orsino mm. because well, i, I had carver here with meredith as well yeah um i don't they do not show up if they are a rewarding right. though correct mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Um, not here at least yeah yeah i believe there is a part later on where they can't show up just because they were like well we should probably have the sibling here <laughs> but um here's the first thing kind of the first annoyance i have with this is it's really unclear with what it was that sparked this particular scuff between them because basically mm. we get there 
and Meredith is saying she wants to lock up the mages and do like a full sweep of the tower top to bottom because she believes that Orsino is harboring blood mages. For no reason. Um, just... Yeah, which I guess, in effect, the idea that Meredith is just making baseless accusations at mm-hmm. this point just with the belief that, oh, there's blood mages. There has to be blood mages. There's always blood mages. Could be effective. But again, this... <laughs> This is where we kind of hit the first friction point for me in this, which is that this is a conflict where they're literally putting a side on either side of Hawk and saying, like, okay, well, here's one side, here's the other side, rebuttal, counter-rebuttal, okay, which one do you pick? And Mm. if you are trying to accurately portray what is happening to Meredith here, which I think the game is honestly trying to do, like, the writing is trying to honestly portray what Meredith has been going through, and I do think that both of these characters individually have compelling stories and ways that their arc ultimately ends between Meredith and Orsino. Like, there is a lot of interesting stuff to unpack there, but I think shoving it into this one side, other side, pick one ends up ultimately doing it a disservice in a way that I was not wild about. I almost... So, I mean, we're we're getting a little ahead of ourselves but really all that happens here is there's a face-off and they're arguing and they're arguing and they're arguing and basically they suddenly go like okay well let's just go talk to uh let's just go talk to the grand cleric althena will make it better for us like we'll go up there and she'll have everything be cool you know all be great and then andrews is like no it won't and you're like what and he's like a boom and the fucking church blows up um this is what we talked about if you if you hung around last week we talked a little bit about this uh really just centered around anders as a character uh during our spoiler chat with heather last week and we got really into the character side of that so i don't think we need to spend too much time there even though we probably still will anyways but um just as a way of saying like okay there is no more compromise this is done this is like there is no church there is no uh, you know last week i said it was like the the church was kind of like this neutral ground for every party to come to where every side would be heard but now that is gone there is no room for compromise anymore so i think that is still a really impressive moment and it's this moment where, um, you know, it's it's symbolic destruction. It's not just like wanton destruction. It's right. not. It, it's very targeted. It's very symbolic. It's very like he's not just you know killing Althena, but he is also like destroying the very ground that was considered holy and neutral, and potentially you know inciting some things that maybe he did not fully think through like you know tempting an exalted march on the city and all Mm -hmm. that but uh it is it still works as like a wow moment so like how did you feel in this moment ken it's like we talked about last week there is it's it's not it's hard to not have like mixed emotions about this because ultimately yes as we talked about last week and was right like he's we can see, like, the point A to B as to how he got at this point. Um, as, like, the player, there is, like, that frustrating sense of, like, I wasn't able to stop this. And I think, like, it's interesting to, like, talk about 
There were points in this game where Andrus can leave, like, before this was even, like, a plot point that you'd be even aware of. Because, like, you can, mm-hmm. he can leave after, in Act 2 after his quest. It's just, you know, that... For the, the fallout of that sort of spirals out of control to the point where you're, you have uh, basically different that you can't reconcile, and he just goes. And so, like, theoretically, like, you might not have even seen this character for, like, half the game, and he just kind of shows up, and that is that it, right, that in itself is kind of like a an even sadder potential fate, knowing that this guy was, like, alone for three years and then still came to the same conclusion. Um, I don't... Knowing where... Uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, because... No, let's, let's talk about it, because, I mean, at this point... So, we do have the ultimate decision of, like, who do you side with, Templars versus Mages. And in this case, because I don't have to make a choice that would potentially lead either one of us to see different like full sets of content you basically from here on out just kind of see different variations of Mm. the same events just happening in different orders stuff like that so and also depending on the the choices you make you may have to confront a squad mate or two but i went with mages i never had to confront a single one of my squad mates um, all of them were immediately on board uh which yeah i assume is the same for you so but I guess uh, like we, we can, should. I guess we should we point out that like, there are lines <laughs> drawn here that we should talk yes. about. Like, because okay, so let's go like one by one. Like, who ends up sort of like by default siding with either side, regardless of like in a world where you've got like zero friendship rivalry with anybody. Uh, mm-hmm. th- if you pick mages, uh, Meryl, Isabella, and Anders, or, like by default, will be on your side. Varric because of his role in the story, is going to side with you no matter what. Um, I thought Meryl sides with... Um, with if, if you choose to side with Templars, Meryl sides with you. No, she's absolutely on the side of the mages. Okay, I'm reading something different in the wiki. Uh, That's what uh, I brought well, it up. So, like, just to... No shade to the Dragon Age wiki, but the, the phrasing and the way that they frame this is really weird. That's why I think we should probably uh, kind of okay. ignore it for a second. Um, where with the Templars, if you uh, if you side with them, Aveline, Fenris, and Sebastian will side with you by default. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it basically, in order for anyone to kind of like go against that particular uh, side, you have to have full friendship or rivalry, and I think you have to have done. Uh, like up to their last question in beliefs, which is basically like the last quest. Um, oh, oh, okay. I, I see what you're saying now about the wiki. Never mind. I got you. I got yeah. you. I'm following now. Um, otherwise, they will side with the people you're against, and I've never, I've never had that come up, but I've seen it happen. Like, because my brother was playing it, like after me, and he didn't have enough friendship rivalry with Fenris, and he had sided with the mages, so Fenris was like, "I'm out." Um, and you know, that can go in some not particularly happy ways because. Obviously, if they're siding against you in this scenario, you will end up having to kill them, and that is no good. But luckily, I've, we didn't, because we're good the, friends. I, I was going to say, I've played the version of this where you side with the mages, but you let Anders live, and then mm-hmm. later on, you like have to encounter him or something. Like there, I think there was a way that I ended up fighting... I want to say it was Anders. Um, I'm By siding with the mages? The, yeah, I think so. That maybe maybe it was Fenris that I had to kill. Mm, okay. It might have been Fenris. I know I know that the one time 
I, I did this before I had to kill somebody. So I, it might have been Fenris. Would have, yeah, would have had to been in that scenario. Yeah. Which I think is, I, I think that idea is, is interesting. Like, the fact that lines get drawn, even though, again, like, cardinal sin of this part of the game is that some of those do not feel like they're well built up to. Like, Anders makes sense. Meryl kind of makes sense. You know, she does do magic. Um, Aveline, not really. Like... Mm. I, think, I mean, I know she was like. I, I feel like she softened on mage stuff over time, and maybe that's just because of the route that you take with her. But yeah, and I think like it's worth pointing out that Aveline. I think that just, it just comes from being, her being like the quote unquote cop character, the one that prefers order versus yeah anything. And I think there's something that's kind of interesting about Aveline in particular is that when you get to the point where you're supposed to fight her, she instead like she says something along the lines of like I owe you a life. I think for um like, saving her and getting her out of the blight. And so she throws the sword down and says, you're nothing to me, and walks off. Which I think is, like, a really... I mean, obviously I never want to be in that situation, but um, I think having that character, like, be at that point where she has not become invested in Kirkwall in the same way that she does by being full friendship or rivalry and just kind of being like, fuck this, I'm out, and uh-huh. just walking off, I think that's really good because I would never want to have to kill Aveline ever because that just doesn't... That seems like such a grossly tragic end to somebody that like came to like like fled the blight with you. Yeah, it is. It is interesting the conditions you have to meet for Aveline to to turn on you. Essentially, like about to, uh, just completely treating her like shit, yeah. <laughs> like, like just not doing any of her her quests and and treating her like crap and and like being a rival with her and stuff like that. Um, in fact, I think the same is pretty much true of Meryl, I want to say. Like, if you just don't do her, yeah. like, additional quests and you treat her like crap, that's basically why she would turn. Um, it's... Again, this is, like, a cool idea, but it just doesn't feel... feels like it comes kind of late in the game for some of these characters. And also, like... Again, I hate to, I hate that we are like turning around and giving props to something that we slammed in the past, but the idea of origins where it was like a very specific moment was what made a character turn. You know, like Leliana and the Sacred Ashes and all that. Um, that at least like gives weight to the character, whereas yeah. here it feels like it's giving weight to the conflict, and because the conflict can't support itself, right. it lessens the character's attachments to those conflicts. Uh, I mean, we've talked before about how they're, like, built-in rivalries in a way here. You know, you've got, like, Isabella Aveline and Fenris Anders and stuff like that. But those those quickly kind of fall away when it suddenly turns into this binary where it's like, okay, well, they've got pick, they got to pick sides mm-hmm. now. And if you haven't done the friendship thing, they're going to turn on you. And, yeah, and I, just, I don't know. Like, for some of these characters, it doesn't really feel like they would get involved at all. And... Mainly yeah. with, like, people like Isabella. And I don't know that if there's even a scenario where Isabella will actually, like, fight you. Because I think that's just sort of her way is that... Yeah. Uh, Varric, Isabella, uh, your Grey Warden sibling, all of them will always, like, side with you. Gotcha. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And Sebastian, as long as you make a certain choice, uh, he will always support you. <laughs> mm. Um, Which... 
should we should we talk about that now? Yeah, should we just get I guess to that we're part? at that. So so we've made our choice with who we side with. Um, basically, after the the Chantry has been exploded, exploded. Which, by the way, was that like like what was the plan? That was that like a remote explosive, or did he like have an incantation that he said? I would say it else? probably was magic. I mean, that's not yeah. like that was not a regular explosion. Like the thing literally like floats up in the air and then just. Like, well, it was more like I've never seen a remote explosive in Dragon Age before, and that was what kind of bothered me. Was like, did he set a timer, or did he like hear that there was a fight going on, and then run over, light the fuse, and then run over to the fight? Like, does Anders really have that much of a flair for the dramatic? <laughs> um, yeah. Anyways, uh, amazing. Anders also invented remote detonation while he was in the middle of all this. <laughs> A uh, true innovator. Uh, so we we pick our side because Meredith is like, okay, well, a mage blew this all up, so mages are bad, obviously, and I was always right. So uh, she invokes the right of annulment to, you know, purge every single mage in the circle, even though an apostate mage was the one who did mm. it. Um, and Orsino, like, again you look at this conflict at this part okay even if you are like okay well mages you know they are kind of dangerous we do need some regulations here but this is literally orsino going like that was an apostate mage none of us had anything to do with right. this and meredith is like don't care gonna kill all of you anyways just to be sure like and just like I, there's, mm. okay there's a weird fucking thing that happens here like in a, in a scenario that we're not in obviously if you side with the templars and meredith is like you know they're like oh we have to get to the gallows she lets, like she doesn't do anything about Anders. Like the dude that did the thing is right there, and she's just like, "I'll let you deal with him and how you see fit." And in the scenario that we talked about last week, where you can like if you're rival with him and you can get him to be like like side with the Templars, she's just like, "Okay, that's chill. That's whatever. Let's kill everybody else that's in the fucking city." Like what? That's that's the other thing is like the the theory then is that if you have mages in your party. Even if it's you somehow, again, through some magic, like, you know, talky points, friendship points, get them to turn on the mages and murder all the mages, which, again, you're just murdering all the mages in the city. Um, and I get the mages are not defenseless or anything, but they are the ones who are being, like, cleansed right now. Um even if you can talk them into, like, doing that, the Templars seem totally chill with just mages running around so long mm. as they're with hawk like it's, it's fucking weird like it just it's real weird i feel like it's... we will get to it in inquisition but i now that i've played both sides of inquisitions way that it splits this i feel like it handles it better and it it maybe gives a better reason for why you would want to choose one party over the other let's put it that way we can talk a lot more about it when we get to that part of inquisition but I think the framing of the problem right. is the problem here. And and ultimately and like Dragon Age 2 is about being the catalyst of finally starting this conflict right. in earnest and it's about the mages kind of reclaiming their agency and fighting back mm. and and starting a resistance. And so I like where this story ultimately leads. I like the mm. idea of the circle rising up and fighting 
the Chantry and all that. Right. It's just bizarre to think that the minutia of it's weird. Like it, the minutia of it's weird, and also just the idea that Hawk as a character would be on the side of the Templars. But I feel like that that's something we can dive into a little bit deeper once we get further into this. I think but, it's just just to like kind of cap it off before we get to like talking about Anders. It's just like the minutia of it's weird because they really do they like in all of the things that Dragon Age all of Dragon Age 2's faults I feel like getting Anders to that point was one of the things that that game really really nailed and you have like this really <laughs> stellar sort of like stage setting for what this could be all but with characters that don't seem to like really encapsulate what the actual issue is here you've got well okay I won't spoil and get to like the the reality of both Orsino and Meredith, but, like, I wish that there had been, like, a scenario where, like, they could have maybe taken a few more months with this game, and specifically with this conclusion, to have a final showdown that was worthy of the thing that started it. Yeah, yeah, that that these characters were a little bit more developed, because I will actually say that, like, once we get there, I... Again, I... Yes, Poe, I know. That I do like the the way that this ends for both those characters i think that they have very interesting endings that the problem is they don't feel earned in my in my opinion yeah poe they don't feel earned Mm. um so my so let's talk about anders yep so now now that we have chosen our side both of us are on the side of the the good the mages uh orsino everyone kind of just goes their own ways like we got to kill some templars first uh who kind of get left behind by meredith but then orsino's just like okay well we got to go to the gallows and prepare a defense and meredith is you know going to go gather her forces and all that you know everybody's going to go to their respective corners there's going to be some fracas in the streets but mostly like it's a weird tone where it's like well everybody's going to their respective corners and then we're just i we're all agreeing to meet up at the gallows i guess to fight this out one last time um is it it is the gallows right yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i was i was confused for a moment because i was like didn't we go to the gallows originally um anyways uh now we gotta deal with anders because anders is basically like yep blew up the chantry but uh I guess I feel guilty about it, so you get to decide what to do with me. Like, <sighs> so again, we talked about this last week. Up to this point, I like the idea that Anders is just like light the powder keg. We're gonna see what happens. I'm tired of this happening over and over again. We talked a lot about, and again, if if you haven't listened to last week's episode, we go much more in depth about like Anders specifically. That's why I'm kind of breezing over some things. Uh, so I'd recommend listening to that if you haven't yet. Uh, and it's just the nature of the way this game works is that it suited it better for us to talk mm-hmm. about Anders specifically last week. Uh, but we we talked. I, I I talked at least a little bit about how Anders kind of arrived with a lot of other characters who he saw kind of grow into Kirkwall and become part of the system that perpetuates all these terrible things. And the idea that Hawk, you know, I I talked about how ridiculous it is that Hawk would side with the Templars, but almost like seeing it from Anders perspective, maybe he doesn't see it as ridiculous. I I think we've brought up 
the notion before that Anders is like essentially a secondary protagonist to mm-hmm. Dragon Age 2 and that um, I think that makes Hawk an interesting character because while you're playing a character that's kind of trying to toe the line and be a, a centrist style character in the middle of all this um, even when you know you the player are kind of pushing like no do the mage thing mm-hmm. Hawk will still kind of always be like well you know maybe let's not like you know not you know completely destroy everything or whatever uh, whereas Anders is like no we need to burn it down to build it back up um, I like that aspect of his character mm-hmm. I think that's a good aspect of his character and a good way to take this this conflict but then all of a sudden Anders is just like okay well I did the thing uh, so you gonna kill me now or what mm-hmm. <laughs> and it turns into this whole thing of are you going to make a martyr of me I'd love to be a martyr or you know flip side of that oh justice made me do it I keep blacking out and justice makes me do things maybe or you can convince me to like make this right by siding with you and the Templars to kill mages. Hmm. And like, I, so Ken, I, I'm going to just drop this here. Mm-hmm. All right. Go for I it. I stabbed Anders. Okay. Um, I did it for multiple reasons. A, I'd never seen what happens if you kill Anders in the scene before. Uh, and I kind of wanted to see how that would play out in Inquisition. So I'm not going to lie. That that was about, like, let's say 40% of my reasoning. Uh, 30% of it was... I see Anders as this very tragic character who... Is, as the way the game portrays, whether I like this or not, they're definitely playing him up as someone who is kind of losing pieces of himself all the time and this kind of felt like a last act like he was i mean even in in his like quest and all that where he's like wearing black all of a sudden he's giving his stuff away he's he's got this real like well that's it for me sort of Mm. thing going on um and i i I think it's like varick or somebody like that makes a comment that's basically like look like you need to put this guy he's like he's in pain he you know he's being controlled by justice you need to end this for him uh you'd be doing him like a favor basically so that was like 30 percent and then another 30 percent is to shut sebastian up holy shit because <laughs> sebastian mm. the whiniest little dude about what just went down look i get it your fake mommy died in the church <laughs> all right <laughs> like god sebastian sucks mm. So he, he, we didn't talk about this last week, but if you have Sebastian in this, he basically provides you with an ultimatum that is like, if you don't kill Anders right now in front of me, if you don't stab him with your steely, steely blade, uh, I will go to Starkhaven and get my father's car dealership and round up all the, like, I'm, I'm making a privileged joke a privileged guy (laughs) round up my my army and march on kirkwall and kill you and kill every and basically i'm sitting here like okay i've got a mage that wants to be a martyr and a dude who is literally so mad that his not mommy died that he will march to another country which i was dumb enough to make him prince of (laughs) and bring back an army and make things even worse for everyone in the city so i somehow felt 
like the most i don't know pragmatic like ultra like like the best the outcome that would result in the least amount of bloodshed like further bloodshed was to stab anders so that was my total reasoning in the end was i was like i need to end this with as little bloodshed as possible and anders is just putting himself on the chopping block uh but at the same time it really sucks to do that too man Mm. it really really sucks and even though i'm frustrated with anders and even though i really am just gutted by some of the handling of his character in the end it still really sucked to stab that dude like really really sucked it's it's not often that i feel like bioware presents a situation they've not really presented situations to us where it feels like a good thing to do to kill your squad bait right because mm. you have like rex and mass effect one where as long as you have either done a side quest or you have enough paragon or renegade points you don't really have to worry about that specific confrontation and even then like it's a very logical reason and that's maybe like the closest thing i could get here is like the same sort of situation that's happening with anders but other other times like you know killing morden and stuff like that you'd have to do like the absolute worst (laughs) thing in the game to end up in that situation and i'm not saying that anders the kill anders option is fully justified but i felt like they at least offered enough reasons for a player to consider it to Mm -hmm. think that maybe this is the thing i should do and sebastian ends up being that thing that kind of pushes the needle over it because otherwise you know it's like oh well do you think he's worth saving or not right and that's where the decision feels more skeevy to me where i don't like this idea of oh well is he worth saving like that's not my decision to make but if it's the situation where a guy is like offering himself as a martyr there's another dude who's like you better kill him right now or i'm gonna raise the city to the ground looking for him i'm like okay well now it's a little bit more of a different situation but i'm interested to hear your thoughts on this please condemn me (laughs) i i I don't know that i would condemn you because like i think that is some of the more solid like hashed out reason versus because like i mean for most people, it's just like, Anders is a terrorist, so, like, stab, stab. And I'm like, okay, that's... Yeah, I don't like Anders, so I'm gonna stab him. <laughs> yeah, and that's, you know, play the game however you want. That's your that's your prerogative, but that just feels like... <laughs> I thought you said play the game. Huh? <laughs> you said play the game, but I heard play of the game, whatever you want. And I, was, mm. I heard the Overwatch noise, like, play of the game. <laughs> Somebody edit that over that video. Um, stabbing Anders a little like pops up. (laughs) Anyway, um, for me it's maybe not like not on as granular as a scale as as it's for you and as it's for even people that are like Anders is a terrorist. It's like it's kind of been. I mean, because I I write like novels of like the story of like my characters in Bioware games. For most people, they're looking at you know, their friend who did a fucked up thing. Mm-hmm. I, my hawk is looking at his ex who he has hurt badly and was not there for him. And, you know, in a scenario where maybe he, like, I know, I know this, textually, I know this is not the case because I've seen every, every permutation of this game. But, like, my character is thinking, if I had been there, if I hadn't pushed him away, like, I had, maybe it wouldn't have gotten this far. Maybe some other solution might have been there. So I'm looking at somebody that 
I have hurt badly and who has been basically alone in all of this. And it was the same reason that I helped him uh, get into the Chantry to plant the same bomb, not realizing that what he was doing is like, I feel an obligation to make up for what I've done to this man. Um, so basically, my sparing him is me finally, like, or me as in my hawk, being like, all right, I have, I have spared you here. Our score is settled. I don't know what becomes of us after, if like we even speak after this, but I've done as right by you as I can, all things considered. Um, mm-hmm. So ultimately, like, it's a very personal reason that I let Anders live in the grand scheme of things. Like, I know everyone is like, like I said, like everyone else has these much larger scale granular thinking processes behind why they let this man live but ultimately it's just like a make good for me like it is me being like everything shitty that i did to you all those years ago this is me finally putting all the rest and wiping the slate clean for us because ultimately like i am a mage and i don't the 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 methods are one thing but like the intent is not, not something that i condemn so it feels like hypocritical for me to be like how fucking dare you and um, like, when I'm about to go fight all these Templars to say all these mages, like, no, I'm not gonna get on my moral high horse. Like, there's no moral high ground for me here, because I'm just as, you know, radicalized as this dude is. I never got to the point of blowing anything up, but I'm not against him. Like, we are on the same side. So, that's why Anders always makes it to the end for me. I've never seen that version of it where he gets killed. I mean, I've seen it, like, on YouTube, but, like, I've never gotten to that point playing myself. I see. I mean, it's, it's it all depends on how you view the story, right? And it's like I was I was viewing it from like a larger, like citywide mm. lens, and you were looking at it from like a personal thing. Those are both like extremely valid ways to play the game, and I think ultimately, like Anders is again, like we talked about last week, is a really interesting, fascinating character. Uh, despite the ways that Bioware missteps in his last moments, but um, so I, I'm assuming then in your playthrough that Sebastian left. Yeah, and um, just to like I, because, because I completely fucking forgot him, like he is like not even a factor for me because like at this yeah. point I'm like regardless of what happens I'm fucking skipping this town like I am out of here I like whatever I do to save the people that are innocent here. There's no place for me left in Kirkwall. Like, I am go- like, there's no, I guess there's like an awareness there of like, nothing's gonna be the same now. Everything's changed, and whatever threat Sebastian has for Kirkwall, they're not really my problem. I, mm, I do feel like there is a little bit of let's say, like, knowing how the story plays out there, along with, I mean, we know for a fact that if Cassandra, who is being told this story by uh, Varric, doesn't know where Hawk is, it's a good chance that Hawk is probably not just hanging out in Kirkwall still, right? Right. Like, there's there's kind of the, let's say, the, the implication that Hawk has left Kirkwall and is in full hiding at this point because of what happens. Um, but... <sighs> I don't know. I feel like the Starkhaven thing is a weird, weird thing because I've just recently, in playing Inquisition, got to the part where it plays back in 
with uh with with what happens like you know where the results kind of play out it's not really anything it just kind of changes some flavor text mm. and then i guess it also kind of like it potentially changes what the theoretical state of kirkwall is um but you never see that you just hear about it mm. and so you mean I a mean, dragon age kinda... game did something that yeah made something completely meaningless yeah i what I a think concept there are... <laughs> I think there are ways in which that game does a better job of reflecting actual decisions that you make and all that, but um, that is definitely not one of them. And I think ultimately it just kind of depends on whether, like, how much you care about Kirkwall, I guess, is if you're trying to make the decision based off of that, like, what state do you want Kirkwall to be in? Kind of wish there was just an option to kill Sebastian, because that'd be cool. I'd take that option. Honestly, surprised there isn't. That's... (laughs) <laughs> is there not an option to like not only agree with anders that his chantry mission is a good idea but be like hey we should trick sebastian into being there too <laughs> <laughs> oh boy oh but then anders would be like yeah and fenris too and you're like hold on now <laughs> no <laughs> damn it anders <laughs> um <sighs> oh anders uh so now that we've actually uh, l- let's talk about getting to our actual um our our final battle here as it were um sorry my cat just really wants attention today i don't know what it is that i've done but poe has decided that he's just getting all kinds of ornery for for this episode (laughs) um got takes on the end of dragon age 2 man who doesn't so as, as we fight through just more hordes of Templars and Mages, this is where we would theoretically reunite with our Grey Warden sibling, I believe, right? Yeah. Or do they just kind of show up? Okay. Yeah. Um, we eventually fight our way down to the docks, which actually has one of my favorite cutscenes in the game where you're just kind of like riding on the boat yeah. across to the, the gallows and you're just seeing the whole city in flames. And I think... Part of me really loves that scene, but part of me also, like, I feel like the magic is kind of lost because this is the second time we've done this whole thing where we've already done it once with the Canary where we're fighting through the city streets and there's, like, terrible things happening everywhere. And so doing it again with the Templars and the Mages kind of feels like, oh, I guess we're doing this again. Mm. Look at me killing again. <laughs> um, uh so I, I don't know if it lands as effectively but that cutscene is what really sells it where it's yep. like oh yeah like the city is literally on fire like it is being torn apart by this and I think seeing it that way versus just like you know the Aeroshock ultimately you know killed the Viscount and stuff like that but he never destroyed the city in mm. the way that the mages and the Templars do so maybe there's like some interesting symbolism in that that the Aeroshock still thought he could fix Kirkwall still thought that there was yep. a solution for Kirkwall, but the mages and the Templars are willing to destroy the city where they live in order to get at each other, uh, which kind of segues into the the way that these characters have their stories in. But um, depending on which side we have chosen, obviously we have chosen the mages. We get this kind of last meeting in the the gallows where we can talk to all of our companions you know very bioware like oh it's the last mission Mm -hmm. one last chat with everybody 
Um, not to not to belittle it, it is very good. Yeah. Um, it does it does feel kind of weird that. So I want to I want to hear your take on this. Um, for me, this was like maybe the third time since the end of Act One that I talked to Bethany. Yeah. Um, and I got like a very good scene where it was basically them being like, "Hey, you know, it's just us now. Don't die out there and all that." And uh, you have this very good thing where you and Bethany are ba- basically like, you know, we're sisters forever. We'll always love each other and all that. It was very nice. Mm. Um, yeah, Poe. <laughs> I want to hear about how your your Carver scene went. Well, that's the thing is I didn't get one because Carver the Templar. Really? Yeah, Carver's Templar, and he doesn't oh, right. side he with you until the end. Yeah. So, right. in a way, that's like it's kind of fitting because, like, Carver and my Hawk don't like each other because that is the relationship that Bioware wrote for those characters, regardless. Um, it is disappointing, just in general, because I mean, it's not to be like, oh, I want I like got like the least optimal path on the game, but like, it does kind of suck that like. I guess by standing on my principles, I ended up having zero, like basically no relationship with the character. Um, as fitting as it might be, I guess I don't know. Like I, I guess I'm mixed on like it feels right, but it still sucks in the end. That like, it feels on the, like on a game wide scale, that relationship just feels very shallow and just like bitter, and you know, not it's just not satisfied in the same way because like. Ultimately, you know, shit's gonna happen and Carver will side with me in one fight, but not for both of them. Or like, I felt like the opportunity was there for him to side with me earlier and then get to be there in the gallows, like, and have that last conversation at least. Yeah, so the Bethany thing just feels a little bit more rewarding, I guess, mm-hmm. in that respect. And I've never seen it from the Templar side, so I don't know yeah. how that goes, but... Oh, with Bethany? Like, if you side with the Templars and she's in the circle? Yes. Uh, we can put a pin in that because it gets incredibly fucked up. Because you're basically saying that you want to kill your sister. You like, have the opportunity to do so. Oh, that's not great. Kind of fucked up. Uh, yeah. Oh, that seems bad. Yep. Um. Here. Oh, yeah. I can actually scroll up and see. So. Bethany Circle Mage. If Hawk sided with the Templars, she will be inside the gallows with Arsino. Once the thing happens, blah blah blah. Letting her join the party or allowing Meredith to kill her. If she's spared, she thanks her sibling and gives a sisterly hug. Well, god damn it. <laughs> I mean, it's the mage scene with Bethany is very, very good. I mean, it's it's like a you know, it's just further cementing that Bethany is the superior of the siblings, but uh, I do Ken, I gotta be a little bit honest with you. I do ultimately feel like I'm coming out of this. Um, I forgot who was on here that that said it. I'm, I'm sorry that I'm suddenly forgetting this, but the idea that a Grey Warden sibling is like the most ideal playthrough of this game. Mm. Um, but I'm I'm coming around on that idea because initially I was like, hey, you know, having a sibling in the Templar and the Circle like really adds that emotional pull to it. But I think it ultimately like ends up putting this kind of token in play that is just kind of a way for the writer to like twist at you in ways that don't always feel totally genuine genuine um so like having bethany here as as a circle mage 
as a mage is good and i imagine that maybe the carver templar if you are on the side of the templars thing is interesting as well but uh conversely if you are going against them it just probably feels really bad so um to the point that you can kill one of them uh yeah boy wonder if that just makes like a thing that happens in inquisition like a certain characters just like oh yeah they're a dick <laughs> they suck they're the worst <laughs> um anyways as we are hanging out in the gallows and we get this like kind of last stand that's all very good and you get to give what feels a little uncharacteristic like this you know big battle plan speech yeah. right before you go out to fight and all. I, I did kind of like you know that hawk was being like okay you do this and you do this like i kind of liked that aspect of it and also that we haven't talked about this much but this is like one of the parts of the game where you get to fight with your whole party Mm -hmm. like everyone is fighting and i think we talked about this way back or at least i would have mentioned it in greedfall like greedfall does a similar thing at the end of its game yeah and that's like whenever a game does that with a setup like this it just makes those moments feel very special Mm -hmm. because you're like oh wow yeah this is my whole party we are all fighting this and i i like that a lot Mm -hmm. really just adds a little bit but then all of a sudden hawk being like well team you know just drinks on me after this and stuff like like hawk suddenly giving commander shepherd style speeches felt weird yeah i don't think hawk has ever spoke strategy in this game at all my hawk doesn't know strategy (laughs) i was like oh we're just gonna fucking wing it we don't fumble we improvise I cannot stress how dumb my hawk is. <laughs> Just an absolute moron. My my hawk has one battle plan, and it is try not to get noticed and stab people when they're not looking. That's my hawk. That's what they do. Mm. That is all they do. They are they have gotten by in life on pure luck, and they're not going to start trying to put strategies together. They're not putting the dice away now. <laughs> um yeah it's mm. very the, very strange moments yeah. the actual fight though i don't know if it's that great either just because like okay yeah you, oh, you, you got steamrolled huh? them it was like i just steamrolled the templars that came in like it wasn't even fair yeah like because i like i was using like force mate stuff to like manipulate the crowds into one spot which is basically like at the wall like that invisible wall. I don't know what it's, it's like. A, there's like a barrier there, and just like yeah, yeah. constantly like funnel them into the exact same spot and just own them, which makes it really yeah. weird when we get to the scene that's after where, where Cena's like, oh, everyone here is dead, and I was like, they didn't yeah. get past me. I don't know what you're talking about. No, there's some mages that just kind of like passed out from shock. I guess I don't know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Templars, huh? They they played dead, which turns out was a bad idea because. So, okay, we gotta talk about Orsino. Okay. Orsino's like, well, the Templars are coming. If I if she's gonna call me a blood mage and sh- I can't change her mind about that, might as well be a blood mage. The ultimate um, back-against-the-wall blood mage move. Now, Ken, mm-hmm. I'm gonna say the controversial thing. Okay. I like this. I do. And I'll tell you why. Okay. Because I know why you don't like this. Okay. I love you. I know why you don't like this. Because it is a sudden just, oh, well, turns out the mages are blood mages. I don't read it that way. Here's how I read it. The leaders of this city are both flawed. 
and their beliefs. We talked about as we were coming into the docks, and this is something that I was feeling even at the end of the game, was that this was never really about, even within Kirkwall, this was never even really about mages and Templars per se. It was about two leaders who could not look past themselves. Because one of the interesting things I think with Orsino is that I found in my interactions with him, he's he's not just looking to keep mages alive he's also looking to depose meredith and install like have a hand in installing who the new power is and he's very he's got like his own agenda a lot of the times a lot of the times he gets hawk to do things without telling hawk the full story like that's one of the main like beats of one of the story missions that we did is that orsino has a suspicion about something and thinks that something is going down but knows that he can't investigate it so he's gonna get hawk to do it under the guise of oh my mages might be getting snuck out by templars it's not good um orsino i think it's easy to set him up as this character that is ultimately fallible because i think the imagery that i take away from the end of this game is that both of these systems are broken and not just the templar order but the circle as well that the circle has corrupted itself from the inside as well and so that's that's the one part that i kind of wish had been more fleshed out and maybe we could have seen more is like what if orsino had been hinted at the fact that oh oh, he studies blood magic but just to understand why it's bad and things like that like what if he was this character that was you know his take was ultimately oh i'm i'm a huge mage i can handle blood magic i've got this because that is what ultimately his character becomes is he like rips his hand open to do some blood magic thinking that it's this big trump card and he just dies and he dies when he's this small like not when he's this giant monstrous abomination that you're fighting but he gets continuously cut down into smaller and smaller pieces until he's just this like little whelp that's like on the ground screaming and hog ends it and i think that's an interesting way to take a character to be like hey here's this here's this mage who thought that oh i'm the one who's like it's very similar to meryl's story almost where it's like i'm the one like a demon's not gonna infect me don't worry i can fuck around with blood magic it's all good i've got the trump card let's do it like let's fight and then all of a sudden no he's just as fallible as everybody else and he's just made mages look terribly worse by the fact of doing this obviously i'm reading a massive amount into the text that does not exist there and what we have here is really just orsino being like well i'm gonna do blood magic i guess uh but i like that sort of arc that could have been there for for orsino uh if he had been a more slightly more developed character uh but ken i'm guessing you did not enjoy this the same page character (laughs) (sighs) so we've talked about it throughout mainly through mass effect because i think that's where this conversation comes up more more so than dragon age it's like how bioware games tend to empower whatever decision you make and that normally (laughs) has to do with like and it's like i think in the long run it makes it where a lot of bioware games especially in like these sort of like binary conflicts that they have going on never really take a side on anything um yeah because they want like they want to present the information and then let the player decide how they feel and then the world react accordingly 
Um, mm-hmm. Where this is like the inverse of that, where like you've spent an entire game. And maybe this, maybe this also just comes into the fact that like they have never been able to pull off really making both sides of the Templar Mage uh, conflict feel genuine and earned. Um, so they spent you know this entire game making mages be these very sympathetic figures, even when they were doing you know all the stuff that they did, particularly in Act Three, where it was you know the absolute worst like cartoonishly evil mages. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was maybe that was just me like expecting more out of a series that never went that next step to like having like having an opinion I guess on the matter in like a more con- concrete like definitive in text way. Um, would this read very much like Bioshock Infinite Daisy Fitzroy to me? Like, how can we like we spend an entire mm. game establishing this conflict of like this, these oppressed people that? We ha- then we have like their leader just make this turn to be like no actually they're both bad and, like what you, like all the decisions that you made in supporting one side or the other you were wrong like it was this entire thing is just does need to be burned down to the ground and it's not like when you have a story that's framed and like this there's a system here that's broken when you also have it focusing on like an oppressed group of people that's when it gets mm-hmm. fucked up that's when it gets like. Why does this game not have the balls to take a stand? And I don't think making it where both sides are evil is, like, somehow more brave than making it where, no, whichever one you side with is the one that we will portray in the way that's sympathetic. Because, um, I mean, that's ultimately what they do in, like... I'm trying to think of, like, a really good... I mean, I mean it's what they do in Inquisition, is, like, depending on the side that you pick in this conflict... One, that's that's why I brought up the idea of hubris when I was talking about like how Orsino could have gone. Is that like, not to get ahead of ourselves in spoilers or anything, but that is the way that it's kind of framed with different sides. Is that you side with one side, and then the other one kind of falls to the ways of, you know, pride and envy and gluttony and like wanting more and being willing to partner with with a greater evil to achieve that and i think that that's a way to better frame a conflict is through human emotions and not through this idea that oh well one is always going to fight the other but turns out they're both evil like and i think there's like this this twist in the knife of orsino which doesn't they kind of mutter over it in the mage section but if you're fighting with the Templars, you actually get to, like, say something about it. He got this magic from Quentin, the man that killed Hawk's mother. And... Oh. Yeah. And, like, because, like, back when we were, uh, before, like, right before we find what he's done to Leandra, um, he has, like, a letter in his study that's like, oh, this is brilliant. Send me more of your findings. Signed, dash, O. And that... Oh, yeah. No, I remember that. And that, honestly... It just, it feels like they needed to find a way to justify this turn at the end, and they just kind of, like, slip that in. Like, I'm not speaking for, like, what actually happened, but that is the way that it reads when I look at everything that's in front of me. So... They don't make it very clear, then, because, like... Yeah. That, especially if you're playing from the mage side, when, you know, he then does not make it clear that right, cause that like, is what happened. Yeah, because, like, when he says that, and when you're playing uh, on the Templar side... Hawk can actually be like, you 
conspired with the man that killed my mother, where if you're mage, like, everyone's kind of, like, watch, watches it happen, doesn't say a word about it. And mm-hmm. that was, that's always read weird to me, because, like, if you're going to go with this, you know... Because, like, that, what, why is it that, like, he does that, and, like, the Templars aren't even the one that fight him. We are. Like, there's not mm-hmm. even, like, a horde of Templars that comes in. Like, not to say that, like, they should be, like, helping us fight him, but, like, there aren't even Templars here. Why did he, like, get to the point where he felt like he had to do that? And the whole thing just... Because well, then you wouldn't fight the boss, then, if you picked Mage. You God boss. forbid we don't do some video game-ass boss fight, because it... Even though it is the weaker boss of the two that we fight here. Yeah, games. and it just... It's a really boring boss. Yeah, it's just like, a giant mound of flesh that you stab. Like, yeah. I, it's, it's literally just that. <laughs> I don't like the <sighs> the optics on it are fucked, and I maybe like and like I said, maybe that is just the nature of the story that Bioware has never been able to land. Is that that there are like that there's equal weight to be given to either side of this conflict, and. Again, like, the same thing they did in, like, the very first uh, set of um, story missions in Act 3. They come up with, like, the most cartoonishly nonsensical things that they can put mages... Like, the situations they can put mages in to give you something to stab. And that has wider implications on the story that they're trying to write than it does, uh, like, one boss fight. Like, because that's, like... You know, we'll, we'll get to Meredith in a minute, but, like... That is something that has stuck with this game forever. Like, that... The, the both sidesism of it. Like... Mm-hmm. And it, again, it's like... And we we talked about it last week. We talked about it several times across this game. There's, like... This inability of this game to... Be definitive and stick by anything it does. Because it has to empower... Or, in this case, undermine... The decisions that the player might make. And I think that's a, that's a larger Bioware problem. And it's why things like Mass Effect 3 don't sit with well with people, because, like, they don't give you, like, that thing where, like, you're constantly empowered for everything you do, and that the world's going to bend around you, and I just... It sucks. I... I feel like probably, like I said about Andrews last week, the like, the optics of it ten years later are, pro- are worse now than they were even back then, and I don't think that if Dragon Age 2 came out now that this would have happened. I think, again, this is coming from, like, me playing Inquisition right after, but I keep thinking about Vivienne as a character, Mm. and just, like, how she represents a way that is, like, like she is a character that can frame the Mage-Templar conflict in a way that is nuanced, and she poses, like, very interesting viewpoints Mm -hmm. about the Circle and the Mages without necessarily, like skewing hard to one side or the other and that's kind of part of the problem here is that like kirkwall makes for a good place for this conflict to ignite because of how bad the treatment is like the templars Mm -hmm. are so aggressive and controlling and the mages are so despondent and looking for any outlet to to get away or to run away to fight back anything and the eventual thing that's going to happen there is, is like I mentioned before, like these these two leaders who are both just adamant 
that their way is the way forward and more than that the other person is just going to keep standing in their way until they do something about it could lead to interesting conflict but again they need to do something to establish that a little bit more and then also to make it clear that like this is not a fallacy of mages this is a fallacy of people and Mm. that like I think there can still be, as as Inquisition does, there's still ways to tell the story in that people are at the heart of this. That it's not just Templars and mages, but that there are people who can make this better and people that can make this worse. And I, I, I'm still working my way through how Inquisition handles it, but it, it is more interesting to me than Mm. what's kind of posed here by the fact that it just kind of goes like well turns out that both sides have bad eggs in them isn't that a thing like the flip side is like both sides have good eggs in them and as much as there are people who want this to be like a bloodthirsty war there are also people who want to like establish some peace and some change and like are cognizant of the things mm. that are going wrong and want to like make a difference so it's i i don't know i i go back and forth on it but um i mean where we ultimately end up is that none of it even matters anymore because uh full-blown war just breaks out and it just turns into just fighting in the streets essentially across all of thetis <laughs> um but after we have had this ridiculous fight with Orsino and we've killed Orsino in what is probably the bloodiest like cutscene in the game somehow uh one, one last thing I want to pose before mm-hmm. we move on Ken has this made you retroactively just think about all the ways in Dragon Age 2 like all the times that they've pulled this card and does it make you wonder if they had pulled the card of oh well now they're a blood mage less that this would have hit better because i keep thinking about like i was while while you were talking i was thinking about was was there any point in this game where they really portrayed like the dangers of magic in a way that could be compelling and the only two things i thought of were meryl's quest and uh the the mages that you deal with who were kidnapping the templars and putting demons in their blood or whatever um who were like basically trying to start the Deventer mm. Imperium in Kirkwall. Right. Um those are like two and in both those cases it's like evidence that those characters are like, you know, they're very prideful. There's a lot of like down there's the folly of of hubris and pride there that that you deal with, but those also just stuck out more because it wasn't just like, oh, well now they're an abomination. <laughs> mm. I mean cuz I think at the very least there was like an attempt made to rationalize why somebody goes to a demon in the first place and like delve mm-hmm. in blood magic. Um, where I mean, not to say that like in the grand scheme of things, like trying to get away from Templars and like trying to find any way to do that um, doesn't make sense. But it just how many times did you go to the, the same well, you know? And honestly, like they didn't they didn't even really feel like they did that with Orsino because like. There's no... And I guess that becomes... Because they want to make it a twist. Like, they don't really lead up to the fact that, like... Oh, he had to have been conspiring with a demon in some way. Um, I don't know. I I just don't... 
I guess I don't what know I'm thinking if, about is like, is there a way to humanize and and create nuance with because right now, like the mage spectrum is just you go from oh hey you're doing normal magic to oh hey now you're doing blood magic or you're dealing with a demon like those are the two cardinal sins of magic mm. right you either do blood magic or you deal with a demon usually if you're dealing with a demon you're doing blood magic so um is there a way to like i don't know like could there be a demon companion character in a future dragon age like i mean they had a spirit at one point yeah and but it, I mean, it became a, a demon i guess spirit's a little different though like this would be like having morinth in your party you know like that's mm. that's like but is there a way i i guess what i'm thinking about well, and and maybe this isn't like fully thought out or anything but like is there a way to just create some nuance to this to where you could illustrate how magic could be dangerous without necessarily turning it into like um i don't know blood mad like blood I, don't mage, think I don't know oh my god i don't think they've ever tried i guess like now that i think about it because like what is a scenario where magic has been dangerous where it didn't involve a demon like and that's not even just dragon age 2 that's dragon age in general um i mean i guess like dragon age origins had was, was it joan or jowan yeah but he's like his whole thing was that he was poisoning the king and all that like magic was kind of ancillary to all that but then you saw kind of like what the danger was and also, like, what kind of the trade-off could be. And I felt like that was a more nuanced way to talk about what magic is. I guess maybe just thinking of magic as, like, not a binary where it's either good magic or bad magic. I think, I mean, Inquisition has, specifically on the, on the mage side of that, there is a thing that happens that is more about, like, the dangers of, like, certain kinds of magic and, like, kind of... <laughs> more long-standing effects of certain things and it wasn't didn't even involve a demon it involved other things that we'll get to and mm-hmm. at the very least like that sh- that showed how magic that's not even necessarily involving a demon when in the wrong hands can have catastrophic effects um but even then that's like outside of the conversation of the templars in the circle because like those are disbanded at that point and mm-hmm. um i don't know like is it maybe too late for Dragon Age to have that nuanced discussion? Maybe? Like, now that I'm thinking about it, like, maybe. On the same topic, like, is it too late for Dragon Age to, like, fix some of its writing with Darkspawn and stuff like that? Like, I I don't think it's ever too late because I think, and we've talked about this before, we'll we'll talk about this when we get into Inquisition, but, like, Inquisition felt like them trying to kind of gather it all together and establish a hub for a world like like a world state moving forward that they could then start to build off of but basically Mm. taking all these disparate ideas and kind of creating a quote-unquote cinematic universe that felt cohesive enough that you could then start to branch things off Mm. yeah i think maybe it's not too late but it would require bioware to have the courage to do a fucking sensible thing and like keep key players around but we'll talk about that fucking in december yeah, we've got we've got a lot to talk about. <laughs> um, let's move on with this. So let's let's go outside and deal with the other problem. Um, Meredith. Again, I won't say it in this one. I feel very confident. I feel like I don't need to couch it. I like Meredith mm-hmm. the way that her character turns here. Um, I th- so as as we soon learn. 
regardless of which side we're on, Meredith kind of starts to lose a hold of her marbles, let's say. Uh, starts threatening everyone. Starts believing that even Colin must be on the side of the mages if mm-hmm. he's beginning to think that Meredith, if, if Meredith is overreacting. Oh, it's because you're on the side of the mages. And then it's revealed that Meredith has somehow made a sword out of that red lyrium idol that uh, had gone missing all that time ago. Um, and it's it's kind of been slowly infecting her over the years and changing her outlook, which is, I guess, maybe like a retroactively good way of explaining how like why things had escalated so much mm. in the years between when we kind of first meet her at the end of act two and the start of act three um you know orsino's over there playing with dead bodies and uh meredith is just absorbing red lyrium energy all the time um but again i like the idea that as as she kind of turns into this kingdom hearts boss battle where she's just zipping everywhere and turning <laughs> statues to life. It's, it's a cool battle. Like it, it just goes, it goes anime yeah. in a way that I did not expect. And I think even like, I, even though I knew it was coming, I did not fully appreciate until it was happening in front of me, yeah. but it kind of rules. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not really anything this they... might, this might be my favorite boss fight in dragon age period uh just because of how ridiculous it gets they haven't really done anything like that since and, and i think it's, it's a weird thing to like kind of look back now because like none of the dragon age games look like each other it's a very weird thing that like i think it just comes from like one dragon age 2 was like after they're like okay we're gonna make a sequel so we need to like start having an identity to what we're doing and then inquisition is on a completely different engine so like it just it doesn't look the same so, like the aesthetics of like both, like, the characters in the world and also, like, the motions of, like, the way characters move and interact is just very different. Um, mm-hmm. I think I prefer the turn for Meredith because I think, in general, they've just done a better job of establishing that that is, like, a very natural turn for that character to have taken. Yeah. And I think that just comes from, like, we talked about, like, we didn't meet Orsino until, like, the very tail end of act two and i mean we didn't mean meredith either but she was still like this kind of like enigmatic force in the background that people mm-hmm. talked about where by the time that we got here and like a lot of the the um the quest we got from her like she has been around like we've seen enough of like kind of what makes her tick to like understand the like this thread of who she is and how she got to be at this point um mm-hmm. and it also just feels in line with the fact that the Templars are fucking terrible and the game has never said anything to contradict that. So, just all like, more it coalesces better than Orsino does, for sure. She she just makes for a really good final boss fight here. Like, even better than the Aeroshock I feel. As much as, like, as cool thematically as the duel with the Aeroshock was, like, having your party fight against Meredith mm-hmm. and, and the statues coming to life. Like, there's some very literal symbolism that is happening where she is, like, bringing the city to life to fight you. And um, I, I love the way that it ends. So, first of all, she has special lines. And I only heard one of them because I ended the fight pretty fast because, again, I'm, like, super leveled at this point. But she has special lines that she will say 
to characters that have chosen to side with you. Mm. So, like, she said something to Aveline where she's like, city guard, and you've sided with the one who wants to burn it all down and stuff like that. Like, she says very specific things to different characters and stuff when Mm -hmm. she attacks them and all that. And, like, that's this added bit of cool where I was like, wait, no, maybe I want the fight to go on longer because I want to hear more of this. (laughs) And, like, when you think about the bosses that we fight in Dragon Age, they're mostly dragons. And dragons are pretty straightforward fights most of the time. Like, from Flemeth to the um the, the, the arch demon to all the the optional dragons to i mean really the only non-boss fight the only non-dragon boss fights we have are either like leveled up enemies so like that that one uh templar knight that we killed earlier in the game who was with that mob or whatever that was just ridiculously hard <laughs> but also like so Corypheus is probably the only other like non-dragon boss enemy we fight that has like mechanics and interesting things going on and things that feel very mm-hmm. like like they are this character. Like Meredith is this character. This is how Meredith fights. This is this is how Meredith infused with Red Lyrium fights. In fact, it, you know, we even get like a glimpse early on of just what her normal fighting style is like before she starts, you know, bringing mm-hmm. statues to life and shit. And uh, like, that's cool. I like all of that that is happening there. I want to see more of that in in Dragon Age in general. Um, mm. She also does the weird because these she... characters should be larger than life. Yeah, she also does the thing which I don't like. If you finish the fight fairly quickly, I don't know if you would have seen it. Which I. I like in premise, but then it gets kind of annoying just because, like, what happens? Like, she'll do, like, this one move that, like, uh, stuns everybody on the battlefield. Yes. Yeah. And she, like, has, like, a monologue as this is going on where she's, like, doubting mm-hmm. it and, like, she's doubting what she's doing and then she, you know, then becomes steadfast. And the only way I was able to hear some of that shit is because I guess Aveline expects in some way where she can't be stunned. So she's, like, over there, yes. Yes. like, still fucking just fighting as Meredith is having this moment. So, like, if I switch to her, then I could hear what Meredith was saying, but if I stayed on Hawk, who I like, I'm made to I fight at a distance, not really hear much of what's going on, and I just have to kind mm-hmm. of like stand there and live with it. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's an interesting idea, but maybe not super huge on the execution. But yeah, I, I heard all of them because like I'm a rogue character, so I was already pretty right. close quarters and all that. But um, yeah, no, like those bits were cool too. Like it's just a really good boss fight, and then it like it ends very satisfyingly with. You know her being like i am your chosen one why have you forsaken me and then she just turns into like red lyrium and mm-hmm. just gets fully corrupted and crumbles essentially um and that it's it's, it's a good ending like yeah, i mean and just like far out future lore she's still there like in the gallows like they have not been able to move her oh really yeah that is like uh, i think it was um uh dragon age Adventure nights it's like this um, anthology that I read, and um, yeah, Meredith has not been moved from that spot by the end of Inquisition. So interesting, interesting. Um, but then it, you know, for us, it kind of ends on this note where Cullen and Hawk kind of eye each other, and the Templars just let Hawk go, and uh, then we cut back forward to to Varys and Cassandra, and we get kind of this last note about, oh well, you know. Varric is like, oh, well, you know, I, just, I can't tell you where Hawk is. I'm sorry. Like, I'm just not going to tell you, but that's the full story. 
And then Cassandra kind of storms out all angrily well, and real. You wanted to note well, that I mean, real quick because like, there's a few things. It's like very like in our in our case, um, the side one of the mages mm-hmm. like talks about how the circles rose up, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Hawk's entire party has like just gone missing. Like they all left in um, yes, they've they've all scattered to the winds essentially. Yeah, and then like and Varric will make that note like. Uh, everybody left except for your love interest. So, like, Fenris is ostensibly still with Hawk for my playthrough, and Meryl is ostensibly with Hawk and yours. Um, and then Cassandra has this moment where she's like, so Meredith was the one that started this. She's the person that we should blame. And then Varys mm-hmm. like, or maybe it was Anders. And so, like, they have this conversation. Like, we, we pinned it at it for a while. Like, ultimately, Cassandra, what Cassandra learns is that Hawk wasn't the instigator of any of this. Mm-hmm. And it is like, we talked about before, like, who is the main character of Dragon Age 2? Like, they, in a very pronounced way, ask that question and kind of, I mean, they don't say definitively, but like, because I think Varric even says something like, I mean, but if Hawk hadn't been there, none of it might have gone that far. But it's just interesting, because like, in all of my, the things that I think are annoying about how like we cannot stop any of this or... Like, the weird turn that happens with Lucino, or just, like, the, all the things we have around us, it is interesting and, like, very anti-Bioware to kind of insinuate that the protagonist is not the most important person in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And they certainly, like, pivot in the opposite direction in Inquisition, um, for good and for ill, I think. Um, but it is... I mean, that's probably... I mean, I know that some of, like, the issues people have with this game is, like, that inevitability of it all. But I think maybe that's a little bit ahead of its time. It, like, at least that notion is. Not, not necessarily huge on the execution, but the idea that Bioware would be like, you are not the most important person in this game. You just happened to be there when it was happening. Which is more or less what Varric says, and what the kind of the conclusion that Cassandra leaves the room with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what ultimately makes uh, Hawk this, like, memorable, like, interesting character. Especially when, you know, hey, if they make an appearance per chance in future things um makes them just like this really interesting character because it's like it's it's not you know the warden it's not the inquisitor it's not commander shepherd it's it's this it's, it's hawk like mm-hmm. it, hawk is just off doing and you know they do kind of laud hawk a little bit you know just the champion and all mm-hmm. that and you can definitely you get the sense that there's like a folk legend surrounding hawk right. but uh and, and cassandra does also say like uh not, like, and it doesn't necessarily downplay that Hawk has some sort of, like, role or at least, like, a symbol. Because, like, she said, right. um, he is a hero. The mages would listen to him. We need, like, if there's ever a chance at peace, he might be able to make it happen. Um, mm-hmm. And then Varric's like, you know, well, I wish I could help you. But I don't know where he is. Yeah, and I I think I just ultimately really like that. Like, the idea that this this story all happened in passing. Like... I I like the idea that this does not necessarily build up, and I know that we are going to clash about this in Inquisition, but I like the idea that this is just another story that happened in the Dragon Age universe, and it had major implications, and we as the players got to step in and play during the height of it, but that's that's what it feels like, is like we are the world is happening, and we get to visit it and see how it happened and maybe kind of shape the way that it happens. But these events happened 
and, and they they have changed Thetis forever and they are inevitable and the only thing we get to really tool with is kind of you know what color and what flavor they come out in you know and that that is like kind of the same frustrations that people voiced with the ending of mass effect 3 in a way like you mentioned earlier like mass effect 3's ending had kind of a similar thing where unless you picked one very specific option which you know for better or worse at sometimes i i almost feel like it feels like a cop-out but um will always end in the death of shepherd like and you just have to make a decision and live with it in terms of how you want to leave like how you literally want to leave this world like what do you want to leave behind mm. as your commander shepherd fades into the afterlife like the same could almost be said of hawk where it's like as hawk disappears into the annals of history how do you want to have left kirkwall mm. how do you want to have left thetis and what do you want people to talk about when they talk about you exactly and i i didn't get that with origins because with origins it really just kind of felt like you were going through a very save the world Mm. origins is a game with nothing to say yeah and and inquisition while while it does better i think is is building is building the series into i mean we're going to talk about this a lot next season so i won't get too much into it but it's kind of building up into like grander schemes where you have this sort of universe that is I don't want to say MCU because that has some negative connotations, I know, but like it is building into a thing where it's like, oh, you have all these different things that are going on all the time and all that kind of stuff. It's like with with this, you just get to jump on at a point in the story and then jump off and decide how you want to leave the world in the in-between. I like that mm. a lot. Um, I think it's interesting as like a singular sort of thing. Um, I don't know if that's sustainable for a franchise. That's, no, I, that's no, kind of like no. my... Feel and that you know that's gonna get into the end of Inquisition and how I'm gonna feel about that. But like, I think that is ultimately like after we've gotten to the full season and all my issues of like the conclusion aside and all my other problems like Dragon Age is an anomaly in the way that it handles so many things that I think it's a lot why there's a lot of friction between it and a lot of people. Um, but I think it's also what makes it very understand. special. Yeah. Like because whether whether the things that Inquisition does pays off or not, um, and whatever Dragon Age Four ends up being, I don't think they can replicate Dragon Age Two in that same way ever again. And I don't really think they've tried to their credit. Um, whether that is because of the negative connotations surrounding it, or just like maybe they realized that was like lightning in a bottle that they could, they couldn't pull off more than once. Um, because I think if you're going to have these stories that are going to be carrying over, like, you have to have a sense that, like, the larger implications of what you do in this world matter. Um, mm-hmm. So as bold of a statement as it is for Hawk to kind of have been just, like, this onlooker in the midst of, like, the world changing, maybe that's not something that they can do every game. We'll talk more about that in Inquisition. But I, I do just... What I was going to say earlier was that I still don't get... And this is like something that just always rubs in the back of my mind, especially when people are like, oh, where's Dragon Age 4? I, I'm always in my mind like, why are you assuming it's going to be Dragon Age 4? I know that colloqu- colloquially, that's like, it's the next Dragon Age game. But this is the only number Dragon Age. <laughs> oh, I think we, we just don't have a name for it right now. I, I think that's the only reason that anybody calls it that. And I like. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm saying that like Dragon Age 2 right now officially is the only number Dragon Age. And. 
I, I feel like the number and is what ultimately ends up doing it a disservice because mm. it provides this in the same way that I think when you talk about like say Far Cry 2 and Far Cry 2 is a very different game from just about all the other Far Cry's but it ends up like I think sometimes when you tack numbers onto things like that can sometimes be good but it can sometimes be bad and can do a disservice to the game that you're trying to present because you're implying levels of carryover you're implying like pre-established definitions of what a thing is going to be so when you're doing like a mass effect obviously the those happen sequentially and they are meant to be played in order and all that and that works very well for mass effect but i don't think it works well for dragon age and i think that the fact that inquisition is just named inquisition and that if i was a betting man today and I was putting money on it. Please don't let me just see like random articles on random sites about this tomorrow. Uh, I would say that the next Dragon Age probably will also just have a subtitle because I think that yeah. suits the world better. Like, I think okay. it makes more sense for Dragon Age to tell stories that are not necessarily adhering to this idea of sequential or this idea of play this in an order like i could almost see a world where we have these large tentpole dragon ages that tell these big stories like inquisition and origins but then we you know maybe teams within bioware teams within electronic arts like motive and stuff like that find ways to tell smaller stories within those spaces and that are closer to a kirkwall story and and talk about something that you know could have a canon change in the universe you know you could have between i mean i could almost say that given the size of trespasser that that's the sort of thing i'd be looking for is like enough is happening there on its own for it to like stand off by itself but it's not this numbered thing it's just another thing that happens between inquisition and whatever the next dragon age game is so I'd like to see that evolve more. Mm. I'd like to see them try to do stuff like that more. Because I do think there is a lot of interesting opportunities when you start to do that. That you could, you know, bring back characters. You could bring back story ideas. You could really tie some interesting things into the way that that story evolves over time. In a way that you don't see with... Really just about any RPG series. Mm. um, At all. (laughs) Honestly, though, like, I don't, like, we've said the Inquisition is kind of, like, an, a very, like, an establishing piece in that world of, like, a more granular sense of the world instead of, like, these more sequestered things. Um, I don't think they've quite managed to clean house in that way yet to have something like what you're talking mm-hmm. about where they can have these, sort of, like, you know, these very uh, substantial side stories that kind of, like, are happening on the outskirts of everything. Because ultimately, like, as poorly as I think Dragon Age 2 specifically is in, tor- in terms of, like, leading to a more granular conflict, they have a, they have a granular conflict now. They, they need to settle it before they get all these fun ideas of all these other fucking things they can do. Mm-hmm. And um, given I that agree. it's taken six years now for them to even... Or, like, not even... They're not even hinting at it now. Like, we, we saw a fucking tree. That doesn't count. Um, like, <laughs> given that we're as distant from the setup to a possible conclusion I don't think that they can I don't think that they should do anything that like is anything less than the resolution that they have been promising for 
over half a decade at this point. But fucking Bioware has all these other ideas about what Dragon Age is and should be, so what the fuck do I know about continuity and fucking finishing your stories and not throwing characters away like they're nothing? God, are you ready for Inquisition? I'm ready for Inquisition. Yeah, no, I just, look, I, I have a lot of thoughts about Inquisition. That, that the game has just really been surprising me. And, and one of the surprises is that we have a returning character in Inquisition, Inquisition who gets unveiled at the end of Dragon Age 2. All right. Because as, a, as Cassandra finally walks away from Varric, we, she leaves and we have this cool revelation that this whole conversation has been, uh, unless I'm misinterpreting this, Ken, has been taking place inside the Hawk Estate. <laughs> Because uh, I'm pretty sure that's like the the area that they're standing in in Hightown is the Hawk yeah. Estate. Yeah. Um, and then as Cassandra greets a bunch of uh, Templar people and such, because you know, reminder that Cassandra is a seeker for the Chantry, so is working with them in some regards. Uh, Leliana shows up, and Leliana's like, "Well, don't worry, you know, we'll." We'll find someone else and all that and there's kind of an implication that some greater thing is on the way that they need uh, a hero for and that's kind of our our lingering mm. cliffhanger that we get for what will eventually come in inquisition yeah. well they also leon also says um because the implication is that they went to look for the warden first and the mm-hmm. warden has been oh, missing yes, yeah. and liliana says that that is no coincidence that both heroes of the Dragon Age universe are missing. But let me tell you something, listener. It is a coincidence. Because everything in Dragon Age is fake. I I don't know. I do. They, they, I think they concoct reason enough for at least Hawk to be missing. Um, but, like, they, because, they imply that it's related. It's not. Yeah, I I think the way they eventually retcon that is they it, it turns into the larger question of what's going on with the Grey Wardens that gets addressed in Inquisition. Mm-hmm. But um, I feel like the Warden specifically as a character is often the most written out yeah. in Dragon Age. Just and I think that is purely just because like there are so, so many, many different amalgamations of yeah this the. If you think about it, I mean, we're getting into Inquisition talk a little bit here, but like the only time they refer to the warden is in a time when they can refer to the warden by gender, because they don't even want to refer mm-hmm. to the the character by race because of how many things that would suddenly change. Which is a shame because the fact that my warden is an elf and my inquisitor is an elf mm. is really interesting. But um, yeah, so I mean, we're. We're moving right along to Inquisition. Uh, Ken and I are already well into our playthroughs of this game. I'm at, uh, I'm at the point where I have met a certain character again, and I'm starting to do some of those larger quests. Mm. Uh, we have a lot to do. We want to just run down, not like the the list that we have of potential people, but just the the order that we have. Yeah, for... let's... yeah, and let me, let's let's go through that, and I'm gonna like clarify and explain something to the listeners so like, they know why we took a certain approach with the mm-hmm. layout of the season it will probably be the same question i had okay <laughs> so um and and remember that these dates are subject to change so i'm just going to list them off in week by week order uh so you know just expect this order but maybe that these dates might fudge or stuff as things change although now that we are 
constantly stuck at home can't imagine that's going to change too much <laughs> so next week we'll be kicking things off with the prologue as well as the the threat remains uh after that we'll be heading out to recruit the mages or templars and ken and i have planned it out already that i am doing the templar route and ken is doing the mage route so we will be covering both angles of that uh, then we'll deal with the attack on Haven and the discovery of Skyhold, which I think the actual name of that quest is like "In Your Heart Shall Burn." I want to say. Nah, um, uh, I, I remember I like that because I used it for a thing recently that we'll talk about uh, once we know for sure whether that's happening or not. But um, <laughs> after that, after we get to Skyhold, we start the companion fest we go cassandra varick solus sarah iron bull vivian blackwall dorian cole leliana cullen josephine uh all the way down through all those companions uh we will be spending what looks like about let's say some odd almost three months on just uh doing specific episodes for each companion character Mm -hmm which will cover all of their content. So all Mm -hmm. of their side story content and all that, basically as if you had fully completed their quest line. Mm -hmm. And Uh, each of those, except for probably two episodes, is going to have a guest on it, which is very exciting. Got a nice mix of people that have been here, like old reliables and people that haven't been on yet. And I'm Mm -hmm. very excited about all of those. Yes. Uh, Was that what you wanted to say about the, the structure? Yeah, so like... That sounds weird on paper, and it's going to be a little bit weird in terms of how... So, the main reason that I structured it that way is that everything that follows, being all the story missions, there are interactions and things that happen that are based on whether you have established a love interest or not. So, we need to have those done and be able to talk about them moving forward. Because Dragon Age Inquisition is structured in a way that is different than... I guess it's more along the lines of origins in terms of that, like in terms of the character relations, where like you can establish something fairly early on and kind of like have interactions and things change and be different basically throughout the whole game, as opposed to like the Mass Effect way of doing things where the tail end changes and then Dragon Age 2, which was like very sectored off through different acts. So like you didn't have to, you know, worry about when you did things because like everything's kind of like landed in a very specific place. Where Inquisition is a game that has a lot of moving parts happening at once. And you get access to things very early that you might have gotten a lot later in other games. So the idea here is by doing this, we can have, like, we can be at a very specific point in these characters' relationships, romance and not, where by being, like, established friends or lovers with any of these people, the interactions will be more complete throughout the game, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. So Mm -hmm. that is why... There's, like, literally a three-month gap of just talking about characters. Because when you ultimately think about it, so, like, we get through all those... Once we get to Skyhold, there's only a handful of main quests left to do in the game. We've got Here Lies the Abyss, Wicked Eyes and Wicked Hearts, What Pride Had Wrought, and Doom Upon All the World. Not All the Wold, as Ken has written here. My bad. (laughs) But, uh... Yeah, it's it's one of those weird situations where it, it's not like those those quests are not meaty at all. It's not a situation like Act Three of Dragon Age Two where we just kind of stumble through a couple quests and then we're at the ending. Those are very big mm. missions that will take us a while to get through and talk about. But as as Ken noted, like there's 
a lot going on there in terms of the character that you're supposed to be playing and, and, and like the relationships that they have. But also there's a lot of side content that's happening mm-hmm. where are you capturing holds? Are you doing side quests? And how meaty are these side quests? Like I, I had a very fun side quest I did the other night that was in the Hinterlands where it's just this little thing about a missing scout and I go save him from the Templars and we found out that the scout was having like a rendezvous with an apostate mage and they got found out by the Templars. And it's all like none of that is critical to the plot of Dragon Age Inquisition in any ways. But it is kind of there. And because of the open world structure mm. of Inquisition, I think you're expected to just kind of be spending time in the world and yep. leveling up and doing side quests and mm. getting power that you need for to do the main quest and all that because that's how they gate it, essentially. But ultimately the number of main main quests in the game is pretty low when you boil it down for our purposes so while we will kind of especially in the early episodes be talking a lot about the the open world and stuff like that and the things that you do in them and interesting pieces of note let's say for just stuff that's scattered around the different areas that you go to that will pretty much be isolated to like main quest missions where it will just be ken and i talking uh and we wanted the companion missions to kind of stand on their own because man the companion stuff in inquisition is meaty mm-hmm. in a way that i did not remember <laughs> yeah um i'm just starting to get into that stuff now and am constantly surprised again by characters that are just sticking out in different ways to me now especially now that i'm like let's say being more critical and less kind of along for the ride. Right. Um, the more, the more that I look at these characters, especially in context of dragon age proper, the more I'm like, Oh, Hey, Vivienne's actually this really mm-hmm. interesting character that I never spent time with because I was like, well, I have Solus and Solus heals. Why would I need Vivian? <laughs> <laughs> and like Sarah is a character that I like, but for very different reasons this time around, mostly right. because she's like, I want to destroy all governments. And I'm like, you know what, Sarah, you're great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she rules. <laughs> I am prepared to defend Sarah on this podcast and we will have a guest on who will do so as well. Uh, but yeah, we'll we'll go up through all those, and then sometime around the middle of December, we'll hit Trespasser, and that'll cap it all off. And then we'll, you know, that'll take us through the end of the year if this year has an end. Mm-hmm. And then, starting sometime in 2021, we will be kicking off with Jade Empire again. That is only happening because the lovely folks at home, you the listeners have been donating to our Patreon have been getting us up higher and higher in those dollar counts to reach those tiers where we can do these games and if you want to hear us do more games beyond Jade Empire uh, you're going to have to head over to Patreon and back us there. Uh, I believe Knights of the Old Republic is next up on the docket and there are even higher ambitions like uh, potentially let's say Anthem maybe if we time this out right uh, we'll have Anthem to play right around when they do their big 2.0 mm-hmm. reboot that'd be interesting be a game worth playing and god willing if this goes long enough and we get to the tiers where we even begin selecting fan games to keep this thing going uh we could even be looking at doing a dragon age 4 you know if that happens in our lifetimes mm. but not likely uh yeah that is i mean 
as always, we love to thank the folks that back us at certain levels uh, who help us get there. We have Kevin Kulikowski, Chris Johns, Alice Hawk, Colin, Just Colin, Just Reds, Just, and Zach Mickle. Thank you all so much for donating to the Patreon. You can head over to patreon.com slash normdfm and do that as well. Or if you just want to follow the show, head over to twitter.com slash show and you can follow all of our updates there as well as when we publish to various podcasting services. If you subscribe there, it's easy to keep, to keep up with too. See, I'm like stumbling over my words because I'm just so used to doing this at the end of every podcast <laughs> now, Ken. I'm, just, I'm getting through it. Uh, but we do have one last exciting thing to say. Uh, we will be recording as by the time you are listening to this, it will be the time when we are recording our Q and a podcast, uh, that we have decided to do as requested by a fan. Uh, y'all have been sending in plenty of questions. If you have any last minute questions, last call, you can try. Yeah, like you can try and get those in by the time you're listening to this on what will be a Wednesday. We will be recording that night at, you know, nighttime Eastern. So you can try and get some questions in before then, normdfm at gmail.com or on our Twitter or DMs or anything. But uh, we already have a huge list of questions. We will be answering every single one of them. Uh, we will be publishing that special Q&A episode as an in-between just for the fans out there who wanted to hear all our takes, Bioware and otherwise. But, Ken, uh, any last send-off here for Dragon Age 2? Hmm. I like you in spite of all your flaws. That's what I've got to say to you, Dragon Age 2. Which you have many. Which I have gone over several times over the course of the last however many months we've been doing this game. And yeah, I'm going to come and be, I'm going to like get attached to your hotter older brother, Dragon Age Inquisition, next week. And, <laughs> but I'm never going to freak. booth? Is that what this is? <laughs> I, I, I was Netflix at... original The Kissing Booth now? <laughs> but I'll never forget the times that we shared. But Inquisition has Dorian, which you do not. So it was a losing battle. Yeah, it was uphill either way. I will say that prior to now, Mass Effect 2 or Mass Effect 3 would have been my favorite game that we had the chance to like pick apart and like get into really interesting discussions about mm. on this show. I'm probably leaning dry, or Mass Effect 3 because I feel like that was where we hit our stride, where we mm. had a lot of great guests, and where we really had larger things to deal with in terms of both the game and the text it presented and with the larger discussions around Mass Effect that happened at the time and all that. Mm. Um, and I will say that position for me has been usurped by Dragon Age 2. This mm. has been my favorite game to pick apart on this podcast. It is definitely the most challenging game that we've had to work with. Mm. And, I, and by challenging, I don't mean like you were pulling my arm to do it but like it was providing me with some very dense and tough stuff to try and work through more than mm. most video games do and i know there are video games that do it much better that's not necessarily an assessment of quality but it is an assessment of dragon age 2 really went for it in a lot of ways and i'm always going to be stuck wondering what this game could have been like with just a little bit more time, yeah. with just a little bit more care, 
could it have been like an all-time great to really mm-hmm. hang up there with some of the greatest rpgs ever made or at least you know be bioware's best uh because mm-hmm. for some people it is for some people it's not you know that that question gets muddy but uh for me at least i'm really glad i gave it a second chance because i think for a long time i had written this game off and as we were coming up on it i was kind of rekindling a lot of the feelings that i had just forgotten about or repressed over the Mm -hmm. years about this game then finally getting to really grapple with it again it is it's a game that i think people should play Mm -hmm. in 2020 like honestly it's if i if somebody asked me they were like hey you know of all the games that you've played for normandy fm which one should i sit down and play like i probably would say dragon age 2 because Mm. it feels the most relevant it feels the most topical and the most aware and definitely the one that stood the test of time and i like inquisition a lot Mm. we're going to get into the reasons for that but i think they're very different reasons like inquisition has a lot to say about structures of power and religion and what religion can mean to an individual versus to a group of people i think it does some really incredible things with that Mm. but it does not hit that like narrow focus just tight in this is the city of kirkwall we're going to look at how a city operates and we're going to look at how power within a city changes and that focus is what just gives dragon age 2 a different kind of edge to just about any other game to me Mm. i mean it makes me it reminds me of games like dishonored a little bit the way that you play in dishonored and the city reacts to how you act in the game it's the same sort of feeling to me so maybe that's why i like it a lot is because i like dishonored a lot but um dragon age 2 you surprised me just kind of like the cap off that note i think it is yes relevant but i also think it is at least something that i'm taking away from it as we're leaving is like the game was ahead of its time in a lot of things, but I also feel like it may be... Like, I, I, we said it plenty of times, this, like, the optics of a lot of the ways that it handles things, I don't... Like, Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe aged poorly, more poorly than I think... Maybe the industry at large was at a point to, like, realize. Because I, I think this game would be fundamentally different if it came out now. I think there is an awareness of, like, the allegories that it ostensibly is trying to make that it doesn't really land because it is so worried about upsetting sort of like the dynamic the game thinks it's supposed to have with the player where it's supposed to uh you know in in some cases empower what you do or in the case of the ending like undermine what you do so yeah i think on that front inquisition i think has shows like a tremendous growth in sort of like the sort of ethos of the dragon age universe and sort of like the way that it kind of frames things in a more, I would argue, responsible way. Because like ultimately, like a lot of my issues with Dragon Age Two and like the, the story that it tells just do come back to that it was a power fantasy game in the time where games were afraid to tell a player no. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like I, I have complicated feelings. Like I know I just made a dumb joke about how I like Inquisition more, but. If nothing else, like that is something that I take away from the game is that it like shows that Dragon Age was like it was Dragon Age's awkward middle school phase of like figuring out how it wanted to like be a larger universe beyond 
this one-off that Bioware thought that they were going to be making back in 2009. And I respect it for that, I guess. Like, I, I, I can respect the growth that I see between one game and the other. I think the, the trade-off for me ultimately is that Dragon Age 2 reminds me of some of my favorite RPGs, which are games that do make that effort to make you not, you know, feel like you're actually pretty small in the scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Games like Fallout New Vegas and, and Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, where you are just kind of playing a pawn in everything. And while you do have a lot of choices, you're still always stuck working within the system instead of putting your thumb on the scale, which is what Inquisition, like, We'll talk about it in the intro episode. I promise we will not keep talking on this podcast over and over <laughs> again. But um, Inquisition to me is very much Bioware putting a thumb on the scale and saying like, okay, you are a character now who gets to shape the universe of Dragon Age to come. And then that's going to be where we go from here. And it very much feels like that game. In some moments, it is literally that game where it's like time to kill the past. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's uh, in in that respect... They feel like two very fundamentally different games where Inquisition operates more at the scale of like a Final Fantasy or something like that, where it's this very broad, like global reaching scale or, or like a Tales of Symphonia or like, you know, it's, I mean, even some of the Fallout games that aren't New Vegas where you are playing this character that is making a decision that's going to shape everything around you. Whereas in a game like Vampire or New Vegas or Dragon Age 2, it's very like located it's very geolocated it's very like purposeful to the things that are happening in the immediate area around you and the choices that you yourself are making that really just affect people around you rather than like capital p people (laughs) um and i i think that's maybe why it just sticks out to me is is i just there's something about that scale that that just gets me especially when you play a lot of games you know like we played final fantasy 7 remake this year and i love final fantasy 7 remake it'll probably be on my game of the year list but uh that's a very grand adventure by about halfway through it you know it starts out on a very small scale but eventually gets to the point where it's on a grand scale um and i think bioware actually does that stuff the best like mm. that that is where bioware excels in my opinion but I like that they took a chance with Dragon Age 2, even okay. if it didn't land. So, oh, Dragon Age 2, just something else. Something else. We're on to Inquisition, though. I'm so excited to talk about Inquisition. Mm-hmm. So we will see you, the listener, next week for the prologue. And the threat remains. We have so much to talk about. Even just thinking about that, there is so much to go into and pick apart. We're going to talk about the characters we made. We're going to talk about the ramifications of decisions. We're going to talk about why I personally think, and this might be radical, Mm. one of my favorite start screens for a game ever is in Dragon Age Inquisition. Hey! I love it. It's so good when you just hit that button and then... Oh, it's so good. Oh, we'll see you next time on Normandy Effect. We have watched and waited. 